Welcome to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast, or GRASP for short. We release weekly podcasts featuring insights from leading surgeons and other surgical professionals. Our host for today is Professor Hitendra Patel, who is a global key opinion leader in robotic assisted surgery, telesurgery, and editor-in-chief of the World's Journal of Clinical Oncology. We hope you enjoy the GRASP podcast. Welcome to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery podcast, or GRASP. I am honoured and privileged today in this episode to welcome uh, Dr. Ben Chung from Stanford uh, University. Uh, welcome, Ben. Thanks so much for having me, Hitendra. It's great to be here. Oh, that's my absolute pleasure. Um, now, just before we get started, Ben, um, would you like to just tell us, because uh, the audience always likes to know about our journey to get to where we've got to. So do you want to just give us a little synopsis of your journey to get to the top as you are at Stanford, Director of Robotic Surgery there? Yeah, um, you know, I'm actually scheduled to speak to some of our medical students next week or in a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, and they're in the process of deciding of for urology as a specialty, um, you know, and uh, if you had told me at that stage of the game, second year or first year of medical school, I, I would have probably told you I was going to do internal medicine or something like that, something completely unsurgical. And, um, but, you know, what happened was um, uh, when I was in medical school, we had something called like a career fair or something along those lines where people of different specialties line up on a, on a table format. So each, each specialty has a table and they kind of talk to you about their specialty. And, and uh, truthfully, as I mentioned, I had really no idea what I wanted to do at that time. My father, however, <clears throat> he's a OBGYN. So I said, well, you know, maybe I'll think about something more surgical in nature, who knows. Um, but to be honest with you, and, you know, he wouldn't have any, um, he would not hold this against me in any way. Um, you know, his his uh, lifestyle was, was you know, as you can imagine, um, you know, pretty, um, pretty rigorous, um, especially when it came to the obstetrical part of it. So I kind of said, well, I'll keep it open. But, you know, as a second year, you're just doing studies, you're not really into the clinical rotations yet, so you really have no idea. When I, I went to the urology table thinking, okay, well, let me just hear what these people have to say, because, you know, I really don't know much about it, to be honest with you. Yeah. And uh, the gentleman there, who's, I think he just retired, he was in a private practice, kind of a private practice with residents said, well, you know, the reason I like urology is because um, we get all the best um, toys, we get all the best uh, technical uh, advances, we get all the best, uh, you know, I'm like, what, what does that mean? He said, well, and this is like 1996, right? So this is well before the advent of robotics or anything like that. I said, well, you know, I get to uh, use a, a small ureteroscopes to do stone procedures. I get to do a TERP. I get to do endoscopic stuff. But I also get to do um, bigger things like an open radical prostatectomy, cystectomy, nephrectomy. I said, that's, <clears throat> that's certainly alluring, right? And he said, also, you get to do some medicine as well, right? You get to... Uh, it's not just um, a purely surgical field. There's also some some uh, uh, medicine, non-surgical um, uh, aspects to it. So I said, well, you know, that's interesting. And my my now wife at the time said, what are you doing over there? I said, well, I'm just, okay, fine. Just, yeah, look and, look and see and, and try to, you know, feel it all out. But, you know, as time went on, you know, I read more about it and I thought more about it. I said, well, you know, this is actually similar to what my father was doing in his OBGYN practice minus the OB in some ways, right? You don't have to worry about people delivering. And, you know, that's obviously, there's no way to really predict when that, when, where that's going to happen. 
and uh, the uncertainty of it. And and the more I got into it, the more I liked it. Um, you know, obviously the technical aspects, uh, notwithstanding, which we could talk about, you know, those were, you know, very much uh, a urologist's uh, armamentarium, but also um, the people, you know, the people uh, like yourself, like myself, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of the same type of person and, you know, worldwide, not just here, not just in the UK, everywhere. And, you know, that, you know, you want to be around people that you'd like to be around. And I think that was really important. Um, so I went into my urology residency um, at Leahy Clinic in the Boston area. And at the time, um, we, we recruited someone from Germany to, um, at that time, which is around 2003, spearhead the minimally invasive aspect, because at that time, robotics was really in its infancy. I remember actually as an intern in 1999, uh, watching a um, Grand Rounds presentation on the Da Vinci robot, but it was presented to from a cardiac surgical um, experience. The cardiac surgeons were presenting this, you know, video on uh, robotics. And I said, well, okay, whatever, right? I mean, you know, this seems like a quantum leap, right? In 1999, yeah. you know, it's like someone talking to you about an iPhone when you're still in a flip phone phase. It just doesn't really... It's it's not really connecting because it's 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 so out there. But yeah. you know, as I went through my urology residency, two thousand three, we we, we um, recruited someone from from Germany who had a lot of experience in laparoscopic prostatectomy, which, as you may remember, but you know, if I talk to my residents now, they would have no idea, right? This was a it was a journal urology paper, like in nineteen ninety nine, and it was the folks from from the uh, from France. I think it was the Montserrat Institute, yeah. and um, it was hand drawn you know, hand-drawn illustrations of a laparoscopic prostatectomy. And, you know, at first I, we read this paper in our journal club and we said, nah, it's, it's not going to happen, right? This yeah. is this is kind of, this can only be done by a, a few certain people, which is true, right? I mean, yeah. trying to do it that way was really um, limiting. Um, but, you know, as I got more and more exposed to minimally invasive techniques, I realized that, you know, this was truly the future uh, of urology. And, and, and it wasn't long before, um you know, Dr. Patel and Dr. Um, um, Allering and uh, Dr. Menon all, uh, you know, produce papers and literature and evidence. And and then I said, well, you know, this is really the way to go. And I did my fellowship uh, with Indy Gale at Cleveland Clinic, who I'm sure you're very familiar with. He's got a lot of uh, urologic connections with Baus and the UK. Yeah. yeah, That's where it really took off. And, you know, but that was a time where, you know, 2005, 2006, there wasn't a lot of... Um, People doing it, so I came here to Stanford and and you know was able to to shepherd the the progress from you know God forbid the original standard system where you had to actually screw the ports in you know all the way up to XINSP. So so you know long and short of it is that um, I feel very fortunate to be in a field where um, you know we we value and um, and adopt technical advances and. And I think it's really for the better of the, the patients, for the better of for everybody, really. Yeah. Well, thank thank you, Ben. You, you mentioned your father, Ben. Um, interesting, OBGYN. So, I mean, they, they were the they were pioneering in the minimally invasive surgery world, weren't they? So, um, uh, was your dad involved with minimally invasive surgery? Is it genetic? Are you that why you're so good? You know, he, at, at the time, his practice, sure, they were doing lots of laparoscopic um, procedures. Some of those were, and, and obviously hysteroscopic and all that. Um, so, uh, but, and, but, you know, while he was in this practice, he wasn't doing, uh, you know, say, for example, I don't think uh, laparoscopic hysterectomy, I think those are all still done open. Um, 
but you know perhaps because you know when i when i told him i was going to do urology he obviously you know there's a bit of a you know interspecialty rivalry there so he uh, <laughs> he kind of yeah. said what why do you want to do this? You know, and then he thought about, it. he said, well, actually, to be honest with you, I almost did urology myself, but back then in the mid sixties, you know, urology was a very, very different field than it is now. And, 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 um, you know, I didn't realize that, but I know you realized that, you know, at that time it was a lot of, uh, TERPs. It was a lot of BPH. There wasn't a lot of prostate cancer treatment going on. And then I think most of the prostate cancer treatment going on then was probably radiation or, you know, they weren't diagnosed till they were, um, you know, advanced disease. So really surgery was out of the question. So, um, by the time doing TERPs was not how we do TERPs now, right? There wasn't a camera, um, you know, you have basically to put your face onto the eyepiece and, you know, do your TERP and you're just getting splashed with, with liquid and fluid. And then he said, okay, that part didn't really appeal to him. Of course, you know, <laughs> as we, on the vein of, uh, you know, Technological advances, obviously, that that's you know, if I told a resident now, okay, yeah, you should do terps, but putting your face on the uh, face right on the uh, cystoscope, they would have laughed at your, they literally laughed at you. But so, no, I think there was um, maybe there was some genetic underpinning, and and but I I, I feel that uh, you know I can I can dispute this with my father. I think I made the right choice compared to doing say something like OBGYN. I think you made a good choice as well. Um, <laughs> it's, it's funny father son combinations because my son has just gone off to medical school. And uh, I think I put him off going. So I said, I'll do something else, yeah, you know, just because it's hard work, long hours, you know, you have to be dedicated. You got to get out of bed in the morning early, et cetera, as you know. But um, uh, no, he was, uh, he's very keen and uh, he does get up early and he's uh, again, he's enjoying it actually. But, but anyway, Ben, back to, back to you, back to yourself, but beyond father and son relationships, um, you, you are director of robotic surgery at Stanford. And you've, you've had an illustrious um, career in, in fact, training programs as well. Um, as you mentioned in the Big Gill, uh, and you mentioned that you're in the Boston area, the Lay Clinic's very famous clinic for training. Um, but in terms of uh, while you're on that journey of training to be a robotic surgeon, did you have to do any other types of research? Or was it something interesting for you apart from the surgery? I mean, in terms of research. Yeah. So, you know, when I came to Stanford um, in 2006, um, this was very much a bench to bedside type of academic center. And um, unlike maybe some other places, um, really your, and it may be less true nowadays, but really your academic um, profile and status was forged by what kind of research you did. Um, you know, but back then trying to do research was, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to, uh, I, I let's say I'm at the Cleveland Clinic or Mayo Clinic or someplace like that, I have 10,000 patients in a database and I'm going to try to, um, you know, look at my outcomes for X, Y, and Z, you know, but, you know, we didn't have access to that kind of, um, you know, that kind of uh, research. So I said, well, you know, with, with, with lack of having that type of research, what can we do instead? Well, we can look at outcomes and outcomes research at that time was just coming on. Um, so what, happened was that kind of dovetailed into me getting a master's in epidemiology, but also at the same time, uh, collaborating with some of my colleagues around the country to look at robotic um, adoption, actually, and outcomes. In other words, how did robotic um, surgeries come to be adopted? Um, why, when, where, how? For example, robotic prostatectomy talked a little bit about that. You know, why did this happen so quickly? I mean, within a few years, you know, I mean, this was the all the talk and everyone was trying to do a robotic prostatectomy, you know, and that was much, much quicker 
a process than say something along the same lines, of course, not exactly the same, like a laparoscopic uh, cholecystectomy, right? That that obviously was adopted, you know, at, to a very, very high rate for obvious reasons, but that took quite a bit longer. Um, and I think it has to do with um, very, very good marketing and uh, e better ease of, um, or, or better methodology of disseminating information and techniques and understanding and, um, uh, and also, but the facility of urologists to really adopt something um, that really required them to completely change how they were doing things. Um, and uh, we found that these things were adopted in a very predictable way, starting from uh, early adopters um, and then all the way down to people who are laggards and, and adoption. But, um, and we found the same with the robotic um, partial nephrectomy and also robotic radical nephrectomy. So, you know, and there are various uh, components to how these were um, looked at and adopted. Um, you know, so to a large extent, they're adopted by high volume users and centralized locations. Um, and, um, you know, cost really, at least in the United States, didn't really become an issue as far as, you know, um, discouraging people to adopt, for example, right? So cost was not a, cost was not a barrier to adoption. And, uh, you know, that really helped. Um, speed the adoption, but also I think as people got more familiar with the robotic platform, then you know jumping to robotic partial nephrectomy or robotic radical nephrectomy, for example, um, also became became much more they became much more facile at doing so, and it became much easier um, to do so. And 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 um, I think um, you know studying these things was very interesting, you know, within a robotic surgical context. Ben, you mentioned cost um, as not being an inhibitor to adoption. But um, I mean, we still have the same problem right now where robotics is now, you know, many, many places. But how do we get it to all places? You know, you, what if you're not such a high volume center? What if you don't have the big box? What, what can, do you have any suggestions for the listeners and the viewers? How they can, what can they do to help themselves get involved with robotics? It's a very good question because this is not something we're used to discussing here. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, no. By and large, as you as you know, compared to other places, uh, you know, getting a robot is is not necessarily a uh, a source of economic angst or difficulty or a barrier. But other places, I understand that it is, and I totally understand why. You know, so I think what's what's happening was we're seeing is that um, um, you know, Intuitive or the main companies have made some incentivization to to lower prices. You know, by offering platforms like the X versus the XI, but but also there are other <clears throat> companies that have obviously been um, exploring and developing robotic platforms. Um, they're obviously not yet uh, approved for use here in the United States, but they are approved for use as far as I know in the EU and uh, and other countries like South America. So, I think that these other platforms, um, you know, by means of just uh, you know competition, will continue to drive down the cost. Um, of doing business, especially from a robotic standpoint. But no, I understand how, um, you know, I have colleagues from other countries. Um, I talk to them about limitations of um, resources and sometimes that forces them to do procedures laparoscopically or open even, um, or, you know, have to uh, very carefully pick and choose what instruments they use uh, or what cases they do it on. So, so I think there are certainly economic considerations, which I hope as time goes on will, will start to uh, diminish 
and allow more uh, even um, access to something like a robotic platform for surgeries. If we, if we were, if I could be so bold as to ask you, if you take out the economic factor, if operating on a patient with a robot was the best thing you could offer that patient, do you think that's a driver for the robotic companies, you know, to, uh, because currently, you know, there are now nine platforms available globally. So do you think there's a way of, uh, if, if robotics truly gave you better outcomes, and you can please answer that as well if you think it does or not, but do you think that's a, a driver for the patient-centric opportunity to give people the best outcome you can give them? So, um, yeah, trying to answer if it's, you know, trying to answer the question if it's absolutely best for the patient is difficult, obviously, compared to something. Well, I mean, I think there are certain situations where um, with very, very difficult technical surgeries, say like a very, very complicated robotic partial nephrectomy, it would be hard pressed to find someone who could do that procedure laparoscopically, for example, um, yeah. as well. Um, so I think in those situations, I think, um, although of course trying to prove that, uh, you know, through some sort of research endeavor would be difficult. I, I don't think anyone would deny that having a robotic platform in a situation where the, the case is very complex is by, is, isn't, is, having that platform is really for the advantage of the patient rather than, you know, converting to an open procedure, for example, to do the same thing. Uh, same goes with the robotic prostatectomy. You know, the last thing you want to do is trying to have someone, you know, who could do a robotic, but not, but not laparoscopically, not well, um, because of the technical demands and then end up taking double the amount of time to do the procedure. That doesn't help the patient either. Um, but your question is really about, you know, if it, it could be shown that robotics is better than how does that, what, what can we do to make um, the cost less or what was the exact question again? Oh, sorry. Um, uh, forgive me. The, the, if we, if, if in the ideal world, the robotic procedure was the best for a patient, is there an argument to discuss that with the companies or, or to work more closely together to give better outcomes for patients? Because ultimately some countries can, you know, it's this, this the economic argument again, where, where countries that can afford to buy high tech like the robot or robots, they, they can afford to give their patients potentially better surgery. So to get that into lower, into other countries with who are low socioeconomically uh, gifted, you know, what are, you, what are your thoughts about if it's not about money and it's more about patient outcomes, then how, how do we, how do we, make that argument so that the technology companies work with us a bit better in terms of perhaps giving, you know, let's call it developing countries more help in using these types of technologies. Cause like you said, you and I can afford them or we work and other other people can't. So is there something else we can do? Do you think based on an argument that patient outcomes are better, although not proven, right? I get that. Right. Um, I think the first part of your question, certainly it would be great to, and we do work together with, um, uh, you know, these companies to, uh, try to improve, uh, specific outcomes related to urology or urologic specific procedures. But that being said, I th think, um, 
you know, these companies also have a, a, a incentive to make sure that their platform is widely adopted across many specialties, you know, general surgery, um, OBGYN, or gynecology, um, head and neck surgery, thoracic, you know, you name it. So I think, um, and I think to a certain extent, urology is not a major growth area for uh, robotics anymore, because, you know, in some, a lot of ways we've become saturated uh, with what we're doing. You know, it's good that we're saturated because we're doing it at a very high quality at a very high um, adoption, but, but, you know, compared to other specialties, which are farther behind than we are, then of course, you know, they, it serves them better to uh, ensure that those other specialties become saturated in the same way as far as robotic adoption. But, you know, I think, reminding them that, you know, we are still kind of at the cutting edge, maybe even more so than anybody else within this, the field. And um, by continuing to prove that uh, we can make uh, subtle improvements uh, in the procedures to benefit patients is obviously in everyone's best interest. Now, trying to translate that to some kind of uh, cost, uh, uh, how should I say it, reduction for developing countries, that's, you know, more difficult, right? Because now we're dealing with a, um, a, a, a capitalistic entity that obviously has um, their eyes on profit margins and, and the like. So, um, you know, there could be foundations to be set up, you know, perhaps within the company, maybe external to the company, uh, even within, um, you know, a variety of uh, philanthropic um, organizations and foundations to help uh, fund these things. Um, but, right, I mean, yeah. It's a very good question. Trying to ensure that the companies will follow through with that on their own is probably asking a bit too much. Yeah. I, I, so it was a probably a philosophical question, right? <laughs> <laughs> Based on the capitalistic entity, as you say. So the, so um, if we just move along a little bit then. So um, uh, and thank you for your excellent answers so far. Um, if we uh, go into where we want to be next, so you're an experienced person teaching other people, you know, and you're involved with the cutting edge of what we're doing in the world of robotics. So when you're in, your, when you're in the OR yourself, and let's say in the last few months, have you sat there and gone, I wish the robot had this tool? So if you had a wish list of what you would like to add to your robotic system in terms of tools, what do you reckon? What what might you want next? Yeah, so this is this is a question that I faced a lot, and it's like, um, you know, we're so used to the way the robot the robot currently looks and feels and operates that it's sometimes hard to think out of the box, right? So, for example, take your car, right? Um, now, if you're trying to imagine your car in a very very different you know way, what do I really wish my car could do? It's like, well, I guess. I guess I could say I wish it, it drove itself, for example, right? Which you can argue it does or doesn't at this point. I think certainly that's a goal. Um, whether it does it well, I mean, that could be subject to another one hour or longer webinar podcast to discuss, you know, the pros and cons of that. But, you know, so for example, what do I wish the robot could do better? Well, um, you know, I think things that the envelope has been pushed uh, with uh, with urology and other specialties uh, with single port um applications you know in my opinion does it do it well well i think the single port platform was designed to um optimally allow head and neck surgeons to do their thing to do their procedures was it designed for us not really 
not not primarily does it do it well it does it but it doesn't it, it could definitely you know just like anything be improved upon you know on a variety of things technical reasons we don't have to go into but also you know i mentioned the car right so it'd be great if i could push a button this car would just go on its own and you know i don't have to even lift a finger and let it go there well of course it doesn't do that just yet could a robot do that well potentially yes right i mean we're going to go go into a much larger discussion about ai and the like and ai obviously is ever on everyone's mind these days um it ultimately probably not in my lifetime you know that probably will be something uh that uh maybe within the realm of possibility but right now you know i think trying to move the needle to a point where you know we take the error out of uh surgery because you know as you know to do a surgery well takes a lot of effort a lot of time and a lot of experience and you know when you take residents through that they don't have the level of experience to see what's going on and how to prevent yourself from getting to an issue just like my son i have a, i have two sons one's 18 one's 16 the 16 year old's learning how to drive but obviously he lacks the skills to 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 anticipate a situation that may be unfolding right in front of his eyes that I can see, but he can't. So I think, you know, having these types of technologic advances where um, we could rely on either something AI related, technologically uh, related to improve our um, ability to do surgery, you know, that would obviously, that's maybe not necessarily uh, something robotic, but, you know, the fact that the robot is the tool we're using makes something like that much more, um, much more possible uh, from a technologic standpoint. And, you know, you ask other robotics or they say, well, I'd like to have some tactile feedback and haptic feedback. Of sure, of course, you know, we'd all want that, but you know, is that a game changer? I, I don't know about that. I think we've done a good job without that, you know, but a game changer would be, like I said, you know, I drove here this morning. If I pushed a button, I could get some work done at the same time that my car was driving here. That'd be great. And not to say I don't want to do the surgery, but anything we could do to make our ability to do the surgery well better it would be a, a you know a very welcome yeah. advance. And I think we're going. Uh, uh, I think that's yeah. what's going. No, yeah, no, it's a great, great answer. The um, I think the I think what you've in all that you've just said, there are the game changer elements that you mentioned. You know the huge gains. But um, most most technological revolution has been evolution. It's been little nudges, hasn't it? It's been little little steps. One plus one becomes four, you know. So it kind of doesn't seem to add up, but it does. And so, if you had to pick something, though, Ben, um, in the near future, okay, let, let's just go to AI because you mentioned it and driverless cars. You mentioned them as well. So all the technology is pretty super sexy. It's all incredible. And it's all going well outside of healthcare is there anything you've seen i mean you're in you know you're in you're at stanford you're you know, Palo Alto. you're in you're in one of the absolute brain centers in the globe for innovation and maybe you can't tell us maybe it's a secret but is there anything you think or can see just coming around the corner that might be of some benefit to your patients in the world of urology yeah so I agree with the the, inter, the incremental steps one plus one plus one eventually you know we're 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 it's additive um just like with chat gpt no one saw that coming right i mean here's chat gpt and all of a sudden you know it's you know it's opened up you know huge possibilities and and really um improved on uh everyone's ability to understand what ai really is so um 
you know, I don't have, or maybe I do. <laughs> I, don't have, <laughs> I, I don't have behind the scenes knowledge. Maybe I do more, more so than everybody else. <laughs> it's, it's tongue in cheek. I was just, I was, I was kidding. I was kidding. I, 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 I we, we, but if we, if we, if we go, you're in the right place for all these incredible innovations to happen. So I just, you know, sometimes, you know, you know, you just walking up a corridor and you just bump into somebody and it's like, oh, wow, that's happening. You know, um, uh, let, let's go back to the AI thing. I mean, are you actually using AI for anything useful at the moment? Yeah. So um, one of my colleagues here, he's using AI. He's looking at AI to he's looking how, how AI could help better read prostate MRIs. Yeah. Um, right. So everyone you know understands that, you know, I mean, not AI sure is going to be applicable to a, a you know specialty like urology, but I think it's obviously much more applicable to a specialty like radiology or pathology, where you know you're dealing with imaging that can be um, digitized, segmented, and the like, and subject to a test um, set to validate it, you know, or test set to for learning set and then a validation set. So I, you know, I, I do think that um, you know. Uh, these types of advances are going to definitely help patients' mm. lives because they'll take some of the variability out of, say, prostate MRIs, for example. We're just talking about urologic standpoint, you know, or, or a Gleason scoring, you know, or uh, you know, histologic analyses. These types of things. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's going to bleed into you know what we do from a specialty as well, surgically. Saying, okay, well, you know, let's examine what you did during the surgery, how long it took. You know, you had a complication. Why did that happen? You know, uh, what type of complication was it? So I think all these things are going to improve patients' lives. I don't think there's any question about it. Yeah. Um, of course, we have a right to be scared of it because everyone is, is scared of change, but I think there's no question it will help. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that's a very good example, radiology and AI. So um, uh, we currently would plan surgeries using radiologists and the MRIs, you know, for nerve sparing, et cetera, you know, length of urethral stump, et cetera. Do, do you, I mean, do you think we could apply AI to planning, pre-planning surgery? I think that's something that's might be around the corner. I can't see why not for the same yeah. reasons, right? You yeah. know, let's say, you know, this is controversial. Let's say urethral length was, you know, we knew was hundred percent correlated to continence, which it's not, but say, okay, well, this patient's urethral length is X, Y, and Z. So you'll either have to try to, you know, spare more without compromising oncologic uh, results or just tell the patient up in advance, look, you know, you know, we don't, uh, we know that for in your situation, you know, this could be an issue. Just, you know, let's give you a little bit preemptive knowledge that you're prepared for that or your continence could take longer to recover, you know, or, you know, the, the Pyrats 5 lesion is in this location, um, you know, we'll do everything we can to uh, cleanly excise it, but, you know, just realize that, you know, over our, whatever, learning set, we realize, we understand that your chance of a positive margin here is X percent and you might need radiation later. So I think definitely, I think those things are quite, not quite near that, not quite there yet, but likely to be soon. Yeah. Okay. So, so Ben, th thank you. Those are amazing, amazing insights already. So just um, a bit more lighthearted now. Uh, when you're not working, and you're not with your boys, what are you doing to relax and look after yourself? Yeah, so someone asked me that recently, and um, it, the answer is hard to come at, right? I mean, uh, so, okay, I mentioned uh, 
being on sabbatical this month, right? So I'm on sabbatical this month, and I mentioned this to you off the record, or off before we started this recording, because <clears throat> during the pandemic, um, um, because the hospital was uh, shut down for a period of time, um, the university actually encouraged us to take sabbatical. Um, and actually, for me, it was a great period of growth. Um, and, um, and, and it was a period of growth because I actually realized that um, as we do our job, we kind of lose, we kind of end up on this, for lack of a better analogy, a hamster wheel, right? You're, <laughs> you're running, you're running, you're running, you're running faster, you're running faster, you're running faster. And you, you fail to notice that if you step off the hamster wheel, there's, I don't know, a water bottle, there's wood chips, there's food, there's a light, you know? So I got off the hamster wheel for a, you know, a little bit and I said, I'm actually not spending enough time with my family. And actually, I'm not spending enough time just trying to take care of myself, you know, exercise, whatever. So, so what I decided at that point was, you know, I needed to be much more cognizant of trying to balance every aspect of my life. Um, you know, do we still go, do a good job of doing that? Well, probably not. You know, for example, I remember when I'd, I'd been here maybe at Stanford for a couple of years, we had a visiting professor. I won't tell you who it was. It was a, it's, it's a, it's still, he's still a chair of a major, you know, university institution here, neurology um, uh, department. And I asked him, "How do you find balance in your life?" And he actually had this look on his face, like, "Oh boy, now I've been stumped." Right? They're asking all these, you know, difficult questions about, you know, clinical management. He was able to fire them all off. I said, "How do you find balance in your life?" He, he kind of looked down at his shoes and said. I don't. <laughs> he was just very honest. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't find. I don't have balance. I admit it, right? I mean, I didn't want to put him on a spot like that. I was just looking for some some advice. So yeah. So balance is incredibly hard to achieve, and you know, for all the reasons you, you discussed, you know, about your son, and you know, explaining to him, look, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to do it, you know, fully. You know, this is going to be. It's going to, in some ways, it's going to uh, uh, take over your life. You know, so I try to find ways is that it doesn't, right? So that means taking time off, spending with time with my family, exercising. You know, do I have a true hobby? Like, you know, some of my friends who play golf once a month now or once a week? No, I don't really do that. You know, I just try to find activities that uh, take me, you know, away from just trying to, you know, just trying to do one thing and one thing only, which is make sure hmm. the clinical practice is um, is solid and try to make sure everything else is going well as well. Okay, that's a, good, that's a great answer, and uh, that's good advice for folks watching this. So, uh, um, so Dr. Ben Chung, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure. Uh, thank you for being on the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast. Really appreciate you. Thanks so much for um, for uh, inviting me and having me on. And uh, it's always great to talk about um, you know all of this. And, and thanks for putting a lot of this into greater focus on your insight on the topics. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. I did very much so. Thanks so, Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast, or GRASP for short. Please subscribe to be updated with all of our new podcasts coming out. If you would like to learn more about robotic assisted surgery, please go to www.roboticsurgerypodcast.com.